church, always reformed and always reforming. And if it meant suffering and sacrifice in Luther's day, and as we learn from this passage that we're about to read in Jesus' day, well, certainly following Jesus is going to cost us in our own, in our own day as well. The question for you is this. Are you willing to pay it? Oh, no, it's more than that, isn't it? Are you willing to embrace that costly discipleship? Let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, your son has not sugar-coated his calling to us. He has been plain and clear that following him would mean the cross for us. That discipleship is costly. And that following him will cost us everything. We pray, Father, that you will help us as we come now to hear him speak to us. That your Holy Spirit will come and cause us to receive and to embrace this costly discipleship for ourselves. That everyone in the hearing of these words may either know that cost better or come to count it and still enter into this kingdom and be ready to pay it. But Father, as one of your choice servants recently said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Speak, your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 57. As they were going along the road, this is Jesus and his disciples, of course. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me say farewell to those at home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We never find out what happened to those three. Perhaps one day we'll know whether they hung their head at Jesus' reply and shuffled away or resorbed back into the crowds, back into the world. Or willingly put on a new set of priorities and follow Jesus, denying themselves, embracing the cross, as we've heard Jesus describe true discipleship and following him. It hardly matters. Their response is not so much the point that uh, needs to be emphasized as Jesus answers. 
And whether they follow Jesus is not nearly as important as whether you do and whether you are. Sure. You say, I'll follow Jesus. Of course I will. Here I am, right? Here I am in church. Well, yes, you are. And that is, of course, wonderful, good, no doubt, right and fitting. But they were with Jesus, too. Many folk followed him many miles. They were drawn by his compelling teaching. We heard Matthew tell us about that after the Sermon on the Mount, right? And by his wonders, the, the, the electricity that surrounded him in those days. There were all sorts of reasons that people came near to Jesus, but not all of them. And perhaps I think it fairly could be judged that in his day the majority of them did not continue to follow him. Many fell away. A good number of those for the simple reason that following Jesus became too costly. Just cost too much. The words of that scribe, and that's if we had read from Matthew's gospel, we would know that he, he is a scribe. I say those words that I will follow you wherever you go were probably often heard by Jesus. It was a typical pattern in his day. People would follow their rabbi and then they'd stop and sit and listen to his teaching and then back across the countryside and, and so on. But following Jesus was something else altogether. You know, following Jesus, and he would have no one misled about this point, following Jesus is more than just following a, a, a teacher. It is following a prophet. Following the, capital P, prophet it means enduring what he endured even homelessness a certain detachment that is from worldly comforts Jesus somehow understood that the zeal of this person before him was not wasn't true to the whole story so he replied in verse 58, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The implication, of course, here is that his followers, if we will be his followers, we're going to have to relinquish our attachment to the comforts of life. Now That doesn't mean that all Christians have to sleep out under the stars. Well, some of you children might think that a pretty good idea, Right? But we don't all have to sleep out under the stars. We don't have to have rocks for pillows in order to be genuine followers of Christ. Even Jesus spent most of his nights under someone's roof. And we read last time, right, in Matthew about his going to the house of Peter in Capernaum, probably a place he stayed very often during his Galilean ministry. And the Bible certainly knows the rightness uh, and the right to hold personal property, to own a home, for example. Maybe I could help us understand putting it this way. It's fine to have stuff as long as stuff does not have you. Even what we have 
We must hold only very, very loosely with a willingness at any moment to let it all go. All of it when God's purpose for his disciple requires it. If you will be a disciple of Christ, you have to count the cost. That's why we call it the cost of discipleship. That's what another German theologian spoke about in the early 20th century and wrote about in a book entitled in German simply Discipleship. It's known better in English. We've extended the title to The Cost of Discipleship. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's a pastor, was a pastor, a theologian who was executed by the Nazi government just days before the end of the Second World War. Several of you have uh, read, I think, biographies of him, maybe uh, the most recent, Eric Metaxas's. It's a real page-turner. Bonhoeffer was responding to what he called cheap grace. Cheap grace, the idea indulged by many Christians in his time and, alas, by many, many Christians in our time as well. And you can be a follower of Christ without making the sort of absolute, unqualified commitment to Him. That commitment that is simply bound to require sacrifice on our part and loss and suffering. He had become, Bonhoeffer had become convinced through his study of Scripture, and interestingly, especially his study of the Sermon on the Mount that we've just finished over many weeks. I say he had studied the Scripture and he found, was convinced that you cannot possibly follow Christ. You cannot take his way in the world while enjoying a life of ease and harmony with the world. He adorned that conviction, Bonhoeffer did with his very life. In the biography, you, you will come to understand, and many of you know, that Bonhoeffer could easily have ridden out the years of the war in, in the United States or even in England. In fact, he was urged by his friends to do so. He was, after all, a marked man in Hitler's Germany, not only because he was an outspoken Christian minister, but because part of his outspokenness was uh, by way of criticism and harsh of that Nazi government. But because he was a disciple of Christ, precisely because he was a disciple of Christ, he went back to Germany and he stayed and he faced what became much more than the mere prospect of suffering and death. See, he understood what this scribe apparently had missed about which Jesus informed him that day. Being a Christian costs. What does it cost? And it will cost you financially. Being a disciple of Christ means that your money is, well, it's not really yours. It belongs to God, and, and so we render it all over to his cause, thinking very carefully about how much of his cause involves 
feeding and clothing and sheltering us and, and how much of his cause must be in the world and the advancement of the gospel and the providing for our brothers and sisters around the world. It, it costs us also, not just financially, but in popularity. Christians will, you will, at one time or another, if you're a Christian, find yourself the object of ridicule or discrimination in the eyes and in the practices of the world. Many of you know this already by experience, don't you? You've paid it. You've known this at your workplace. Others of you have experienced this already at school by your teachers and professors and fellow students. There are pleasures in the world that the disciple of Christ does not indulge because she knows that being a follower of Christ forbids her those things. You no doubt can think of other ways that being a disciple of Christ costs you, has cost you personally. Some of you may not be genuine disciples of Christ. You've been on the fringe for a long time. Maybe you've, you've gone to church as long as you can remember, and you even think yourself to be a disciple, but you're not yet. Others of you haven't ever thought about it, but you, you think that it might be a nice thing to do, even a desirable thing to do. You could easily... Say, you could hear yourself saying, you know, I'll follow Jesus anywhere and everywhere. The problem is you haven't considered the cost. I urge you in Jesus' name to do that right now. And all of us here will, will be served from time to time to stop and think about the cost. And are we willing You've heard many of an evangelistic appeal, haven't you? This was a very popular one. Jesus loves you. You know the rest of it, right? Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But you know, I think maybe, well, you know, the Christian life is wonderful. It is wonderful. Of course it is Wonderful in so many respects, and of course, even more wonderful in the life to come. But it could just as easily be said, Jesus loves you, and he has a very difficult plan for your life. There are sacrifices to be made. There are costly principles to be kept. That's the point of the second and third encounters. The second Jesus initiates. Follow me, he says. But the response Jesus gets, it's polite, but it amounts to indefinite delay. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Was that an unreasonable request? The Bible scholars, they go back and forth on this question of whether perhaps the man's father had just died, uh, which I think is unlikely. It's 
since he's standing there with Jesus at the time and not tending at that moment to funeral matters and in that culture and in that climate and at that time a funeral a death was a pressing matter to uh, to take care of or perhaps saying that he would uh, come and follow Jesus after he had seen his father through the rest of his years however many that might be either way Jesus point is that when you become a member of the kingdom of God you get a whole new set of priorities. A new set of priorities that, that take precedence. Even family. One of the idols of our time. Even family, even honored family traditions must take second place. That's the same point for the third. He said to Jesus, verse 61, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say well, farewell to those at my home. What's the word you just heard repeated? First. Right, first. First. I'll follow you, but first. I'll, I'll, Jesus, I will come out, but, but first. I will follow you, but first. But first. Right? Genuine discipleship. is what first or whom Christ Christ first and Christ last and Christ at every point in between to drive home the point Jesus adds is, as he was wont to do another agricultural analogy in verse 62 no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God now it isn't a hard picture to imagine this is a wonderful thing about Jesus illustrations isn't it particularly if you've heard stories like I have from my uh, grandfather of watching his father reins dangling around the back of his neck every ounce of attention and strength and energy given with calloused hands gripping the handles of the single blade dragged through the soil by a team of horses out front. Now imagine if my uh, great-grandfather um, were to plow that way, but to do it looking like this. What would happen? You know, before too long, looking backwards, he'd be far left a field or, or right a field, right? Now we've got our, our tractors equipped with the GPS and satellite positioning, and the farmer can lie back and cross his arms and close his eyes, and the tractor, you know, goes and cuts straight furrows across the, the fields. But uh, you get the point. For the Christian, whatever he is doing, whatever is going on in her life or his. There is one point. There is one single direction. One single guiding principle. One single singular purpose. And that is following Christ. Come wind. Following Christ, come weather, following Christ, whatever the cost, whatever the sacrifice, even to one's very blood. 
That is your calling, Chris. Every one of you Christians, that is your calling. And maybe your calling too, who in the hearing of my voice right now, have yet to become disciples of his today. Now much more could be said about all of that, but I, I thought instead that this being Reformation Sunday, I might supply you an example of someone who, whose faith we might consider, who not only counted but actually paid this cost of discipleship. I thought of the obvious ones, you know, Martin Luther most certainly paid the cost of discipleship through condemnation by the church court. Imagine how that wrenched Martin's heart. The kidnapping, the cloistered work, and translating the scriptures and so on, the hiding. Or we could think of John Calvin, worked himself to an early grave at uh, the age of 54 after a faithful ministry as a pastor and a theologian, prolific writer, and all of it on roughly four hours of sleep a night. And for the last several of his years, especially through bouts of malaria-like fevers, tuberculosis, ulcerated veins, kidney stones, and hemorrhoids, all topped off with a healthy helping of grief and deep personal betrayal. But I thought intend, instead to tell you about another important Reformation figure, and even more than that, disciple of Christ. <clears throat> Her name is Anne Askew. After the 9 o'clock service, one of the little children came up and, and told me that their family had just read this, read about Anne Askew and their uh, family time together just a month ago. But I'm going to let an old boss of mine tell you the story, the principal of the high school in which I served for a year as a Bible teacher. Mr. Hanula first wrote this along with a bunch of other sketches of historical uh, Christians for his children. Now they're published together in a single book, but I think we can benefit from it today too. Anne Askew was born the same year that a 38-year-old Martin Luther was tried and condemned at Worms, 1521, and died at the age of 25. Here's Mr. Haniel's account. <clears throat> Late in the reign of Henry, King Henry VIII, when the Church of England still clung to many false beliefs, an enraged husband burst into his home shouting for his wife, Anne! A priest had just taunted him, you see, saying, your wife is a heretic. She openly renounces the teachings of the church. Anne Askew, a, a beautiful young woman, came running to her husband. Grabbing her by the arm, he dragged her to the front door and violently threw her out of the house. Get out! And never return, he cried. Banished from her, her home and uncertain where to turn, Anne went to live near her brother in London. Her brother, a soldier in King Henry VIII's bodyguard, introduced Anne to the queen, Catherine Parr, and several devout Christian ladies of the court. Catherine was Henry's 
And maybe you all can keep track of all these wives. I never can keep them straight. But it was Henry's sixth wife. How does this saying go? Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. Well, <clears throat> Catherine Parr, sixth wife. Henry had divorced two of his previous wives, had two others beheaded. Before long, Anne Askew and the Christian ladies were meeting daily in the Queen's private rooms to hear a sermon and to pray and to study the Bible. Although the king had decreed all such religious meetings illegal, he did nothing to stop her. This was a difficult time for the Protestants of England, uh, and uh, for although Henry VIII had separated the churches of England from the church of Rome, he did not do so because he, you know, embraced the ideas of the Protestant Reformation. It was because he wanted a divorce, and the Pope wouldn't give it to him. Henry and his supporters in the Church of England clung to the doctrines of the Catholic Church, many of which were against the clear teachings of Scripture. The churchmen who hated the Reformation decided to make an example of Anne. By attacking her, they hoped to scare the queen and others of the royal court away from the Protestant reformers. Askew's outspokenness about her faith made her a particularly easy target. Once she said, I would rather read five lines of the Bible than hear five masses in the church. She openly declared that the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper were not changed by the priest into the physical body and blood of Jesus, as the Roman Catholics taught. For these beliefs, Askew was arrested and thrown into prison. The Lord Mayor of London and a judge questioned her at length. Why did you say that you would rather read five lines of the Bible than to hear five masses? Because the one helps me greatly, Askew answered, and the other does nothing at all. Have you the Spirit of God in you? he asked. If I don't, Askew replied, I am unsaved and without hope. Do you think private masses help the souls of those who have died, he asked? It is a great idolatry to believe them to be of more value than the death of Christ for us, she replied. Looking down his nose at Anne, the Lord Mayor said, You foolish woman! In the Mass, after the priest says the words of consecration over the bread, does it not become the Lord's body? No, Anne replied. It is but consecrated or sacramental bread. What if a mouse should eat it after the priest's consecration, the mayor demanded. What do you say, foolish woman, will become of the mouse? <laughs> Askew replied, What do you say will become of it, my lord? I say the mouse is damned, the lord mayor answered. And Askew smiled and said, Ah, poor mouse. <laughs> <laughs> 
Next came Edmund Bonner, Bishop of London, who visited Askew in prison, determined he was to drag a recantation out of her. Beforehand, he had drawn up a list of the beliefs of the Catholic faith, and thrusting the list into Askew's hands, he ordered her to sign it. She carefully read it, and then wrote at the bottom of the page, I believe everything written here which agrees with Holy Scripture. As Bishop Bonner read this statement, his cheeks flamed red. Snatching the pen from her hand, he scratched out her sentence there and thrust the paper and pen back, demanding, sign this document. Askew took the pen and wrote, I, and Askew, to believe many things contained in the faith of the Catholic Church. Enraged at Askew's refusal to comply, he hurried out of her cell saying, She is a woman, and I am not deceived by her. Three months later, the bishop hauled Askew before a church court, which declared her a heretic and sentenced her to death by burning. I have searched the scriptures, said Askew to the court, yet I have never found that either Christ or his apostles put anyone to death. Back in her prison cell, she, she wrote a poem of faith in Christ. Like as the armored knight appointed to the field with this world will I fight, and faith shall be my shield. The court sent Askew to the Tower of London. You know what that meant. To be tortured in hopes that she would give them evidence against the ladies of the royal court. So the soldiers shackled their hands together and then they shackled her feet together and they threw her on the rack and tied her hands above and her feet below started turning the cranks according to some accounts they cranked until her entire body was five inches off of the rack she grimaced of course in pain as ligaments and tendons in her arms and legs were pulled tell us who else defies the king and the church? Renounce your faith and you will be pardoned, they demanded. I will sooner die than break my faith, she answered. Seeing that she would not break, the guards returned her to her dungeon cell, where, falling to her knees, she prayed, O oh Lord, I have more enemies now than the hairs on my head. Yet, Lord, let them never overcome me with vain words. But fight, Lord, in my place, for on you I cast my care. On the 16th of July, 1546, a huge crowd gathered 
They were there to view the execution of Anne Askew and three other prisoners in front of St. Bartholomew's Church in Smithfield, London. Because of the torture, Anne was unable to walk and had to be carried to the stake. Before the burning, the bishop delivered a sermon during which Askew pointed out statements contrary to the Bible, saying he errs and speaks without the book. As soldiers chained Askew to the stake and made ready the bonfire, a messenger, last-minute messenger, arrived offering the king's pardon if she would recant. I did not come here, Askew said, to deny my lord and master. And then she died for Christ in the flames. A year later, King Henry VIII died. And the Protestant Reformation moved forth with force. And the beliefs that Askew died for became the teachings of the Church of England. On thee, my care, I cast for all their cruel spite. I set not by their haste, for thou art my delight. Amen.